Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series Mission Possible. As Christians, we are called to be on mission, longing and working to see God known and worshipped by people from every culture, from our own city to the ends of the earth. Today's text, we're actually going to have two. They're going to be from uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and then Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. I'll be teaching from uh, the 1984 NIV, and uh, everything will be up on the screens. You can follow along. Hear now the words of our covenant Lord. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And then in Luke's gospel, chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, years ago, there was a cartoon strip that was really popular. It was called Dilbert. And if you remember Dilbert, it made fun of a lot of American business practices. And one of the main characters was uh, a character referred to as pointy-haired boss. He was the guy that was in charge. And uh, pointy-haired boss was oftentimes giving the people tasks where he did not really tell them what they needed to do, but he just basically told them to look busy and get about it. I remember one particular strip where he told them that they had been given a project and he commanded Dilbert and the other guys to start working on the project. And they said, but we don't know the requirements. We have no idea what we're doing. And he said, well, just go ahead and start anyway, and I'll go and find out what they are. Just kind of look busy. And it was a recurring theme in Dilbert. And anybody who's been involved in the business world knows the worst part about that is how true it actually all was, that Dilbert was oftentimes not really a fictional comic strip. And the question would be for us, in, in that case, they didn't know what they were supposed to be doing. And there are many in the church who are also kind of confused, what are we supposed to be doing? Or should we take the approach, there are some who've said, you know, Jesus is returning, look busy. Is that what we're supposed to do, just stay busy? Or is there actually a task we have been given? And thankfully, this is good news for us, we are not ruled by pointy-haired boss. Jesus is not the pointy-haired guy. He has given us clear instructions. And in this, we, we need to recognize that because of this, there have been basically three views on missions in the history of church. The traditional view, John Stott kind of pointed this out years ago in an article on mission, and he said the traditional view was that mission equaled evangelism. The church was called to proclaim the gospel to the lost. That's what the church was called to do, period. And so people did that. They would go. They would preach the gospel to the lost. And if those people were suffering physically, if they were poor, that was not really the church's concern. Secondly, in response to that, in more modern times, it's really kind of cropped up in the beginning in the 19th century, moving forward, especially in the early 20th century, this became the dominant view, which was that mission equaled social action. They oftentimes call it social action or social justice, or what I'm going to refer to as mercy ministry. In other words, the church was there to relieve poverty and suffering and to care for people's bodies. And quite often, to be fair, this was born out of a lack of confidence and belief in the gospel. The gospel, even if they thought it was true at all, was true for us, but not necessarily for these other people. And so we are called to work on taking care of things like you know, the relieving poverty and doing medical work and that sort of thing. But what Stott argued for, and what I want to argue for today, was a biblically integrated view of missions, which is that mission equals both evangelism and mercy ministry. That it is not either or, but in fact, Jesus calls us to a holistic ministry that cares for the bodies of people, but also cares for the souls of people. That will preach the good news, but will also engage in good works here and around the globe. Now, 
How do we uh, do this? Well, we're going to look at what Jesus did. And we begin by looking at Jesus' message, his method, and then therefore his call to us. Now, the two texts I picked aren't just random texts. I want you to understand I picked two different texts, but I could have picked two texts out of anywhere. But in fact, they both deal with the same thing. Both Mark and Luke in these texts are saying, this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. What's happening is Luke is giving us the very first sermon of Jesus. Jesus, in that text we read, is in the synagogue. They said, do you want to give a word? And he told them to open to the, uh, the scroll to the prophet of Isaiah, and he begins by reading this text from Isaiah 61. And then he actually, if we continue reading the next verses, says, the words you have heard are fulfilled in your hearing today. And then he sits down and causes a firestorm because that was a claim to be the Messiah, basically, when he said that, because the Messiah was going to do what's there in Luke's text. Mark doesn't give us that sermon. What Mark does is he gives us a summary and says, after Jesus did that, he went all around the area preaching, and Mark gives us a summary and says, if you want to boil down what Jesus says, it's boiled down in this one sentence right here, and this is the message of Jesus. So together, these two texts are showing us when Jesus begins his ministry, this is his message, this is the method that he follows, and it's actually his call to us. So what are they? Well, let's begin with the message of Jesus that Mark shows us in his gospel. And that message is the gospel of the kingdom. We read in verse 14, after John was put into prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. That word good news is the word gospel. He's proclaiming the gospel of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Again, the word is gospel. So notice that what Mark tells us is Jesus came proclaiming. This was the traditional view. He came speaking, and he came speaking the gospel. He proclaimed the gospel, the good news of God. And notice here it's furthermore uh, determined as being the kingdom of God. He's saying the kingdom of God is near. And that's a reminder that in the gospel, what we are proclaiming is that God rules over all things. And the God who has created us and who is our judge, here is what he has done to reconcile us to himself. That is the message of the gospel of the kingdom. And notice Jesus doesn't even just proclaim this as informational. He gives a response. The kingdom of God is here. I'm telling you the good news, so here's what you need to do. You need to repent and you need to believe the gospel. That's the response that Jesus called for and was expecting out of us. He specifically called for repentance, which means you all are walking this way. Stop. Turn around. Embrace the gospel rather than the false gospels that you have been embracing. And so the fi primary focus of Jesus' words is the gospel. When we say we are about preaching the gospel and talking about the gospel, that's not because it's a current thing that some people have thought of. It's because it's what was central in Jesus' own message. Right here, Mark says, you want to know what Jesus talked about? He talked about the gospel. He came and he proclaimed the gospel. Now, Luke, at the same time, gives us the very first sermon of Jesus, and Jesus' method kind of flows out of that first sermon and notice what Luke says in verses uh, in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. First off, we read, and I've got these highlighted in yellow here, that he's quoting again from Isaiah. Isaiah is writing to people who are in exile, who've been cut off from God. And the word is this, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me. And what's he anointed me to do? Preach good news. Secondly, uh, it's repeated and says, he sent me to proclaim freedom for the blind. And then finally in, in verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So notice here, he's got the word preach and he's got the word proclaim twice. And he says specifically what I'm proclaiming is good news, the gospel, the same thing that Mark told us. It is the year of the Lord's favor, which is what, that's a reference actually back to the Jubilee year. And what Jesus is saying is this is what the gospel is. As in Jubilee, when debts were forgiven, when things were canceled out, that is what God has done with you. That is what he has done with your sins. It is Jubilee year because I, the Messiah, have come. 
freedom of sin, freedom, forgiveness, uh, the canceling of all your debts before God is what I proclaim to you. And that is good news. And so it's the same focus as we saw in Mark's gospel. But notice, Jesus here, quoting Isaiah, specifically tells us who we are preaching to. So he says, I want you to preach good news to the poor. These words are highlighted in green up here. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed. And these are the people to whom we proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, Jubilee, quite honestly, wasn't necessarily good news if you were rich and everybody owed you money. Jubilee was good news when you were the debtor. Jubilee was good news when you were poor, when, when you had even had to sell yourself into slavery. Jubilee was good news. And so Isaiah picks up on that theme and says, I'm speaking to exiles, and I want you to know, even in exile, God declares jubilee. God declares that you are freed, you are set free from all that has bound you. And so there is a specific call to the poor, to prisoners, to the blind, to the oppressed. Now, some people want to, and this is the people who don't like the idea of mercy ministry, they want to say, well, you know, when Jesus proclaimed in the Sermon on the Mount, it's the poor in spirit. It's those who are blind spiritually. They are oppressed spiritually. They are trapped spiritually. And I will say, it certainly does apply to that. We were blind. We were oppressed. We were poor in spirit. We were trapped in our sin, and the gospel comes and declares jubilee and freedom from all of that. All of that is absolutely true. But that does not mean, it doesn't mean what the words actually say. Messiah has come for the poor, not just the poor in spirit, those who are actually physically poor. That's what the text in Isaiah was originally about, was those who were carried into exile, not just spiritually, but physically they were in exile. And Messiah was coming to set them free. And if you think about it, you can ask yourself the issue, as Jesus goes out from there and ministers, does Jesus only minister words and to spiritual poverty, or does he actually deal with people who are literally physically poor, blind, oppressed? Is it just spiritual? In fact, his whole ministry is characterized by him going and ministering not only to people's spiritual needs, but also to their physical needs. His ministry included proclaiming the gospel to the spiritually poor, sick, and oppressed, and also to meeting the physical needs of those who were physically poor, blind, and oppressed. He did that consistently. In fact, if you look, and we forget this sometimes, but Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees is not just a religious conflict. The Pharisees held all the reins of power. The Pharisees and the Sadducees ruled, and Jesus said, you all are heaping burdens on people's backs. And God has come to break that. God has come to set that free. And he called people consistently saying, you are oppressing others, and God calls you out of that. And so his whole ministry includes ministry both spiritually but also physically. The mission of Jesus included proclaiming the good news and doing good works, both evangelism and mercy ministry. And friend, if that's how, what characterized Jesus' ministry, the same should characterize ours. If we're going to take the name Christian, those who follow Christ, it's silly to think, well, that's what his mission was, but we're going to have a different mission. No, we have the same mission he had, and he didn't come doing either or. He did both and. So what that means for us is, thanks be to God, we don't have to just look busy. We know what we're supposed to be doing. And what we're supposed to be doing is the work of mission, which is evangelism and mercy ministry. Now, why do we need both? Well, the, let's look first at evangelism, the work of mission being evangelism. There are several reasons why we know this is our work. Number one, Jesus calls us to preach the gospel just as he did. Um, in Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47, Jesus, resurrected, about to ascend back to the Father, says this. He told them, this is what is written. He's summarizing the whole Old Testament. 
The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And so he's, Jesus is here telling us, here's what you're going to do. You are going to preach and call people to repentance, just exactly what I did. When I told people, repent and believe the good news, you're to go out with the same message you heard me preach, and you were to go forth and do this. And notice Jesus is not only giving us that direct command, but he's telling us this is what is written in the Old Testament. Jesus here says, I'm going to summarize an Old Testament survey class down to one sentence. Here's what the whole Old Testament is about. From Genesis 1-1 to the last verse of Malachi, here's what it is. I was going to come, I was going to suffer, I was going to bear the penalty for sins, I was going to be put to death, I'm going to be raised on the third day, and then the church is going to go forth and proclaim the gospel and call people to repentance in every nation. That's the Old Testament right there. I wish my seminary profs would have accepted that. It made, it made my classes a whole lot easier <laughs> if I could have just summarized it that way. They wanted all the details. But Jesus there says, this is what the Old Testament's about. So not only are we called to do it, but it's what the whole Old Testament called us to. And Jesus says, we're just fulfilling that. Everything that was prophesied has now come true. And then I want you to thirdly realize, remember, we looked a minute ago at Jesus' proclamation from Isaiah in Luke 4, the beginning of his ministry, we're now at the very end of Luke's gospel. After we've done everything, Jesus says, okay, what I started with all the way back there, the very first thing I did, now you're doing it. The baton's handed on, tag, you're to carry on the ministry. So the way the gospel starts is the way the gospel ends. It's the crescendo, it's the final note of Luke's gospel is you are to go. Everywhere you go, you proclaim the gospel and you call people to repentance. We can see the same thing, of course, in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. I could do the same thing in Mark's gospel as well, but I'll just go to Matthew. The, the, the famous phrase, right? Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So for those who, who want to say, well, we don't, you know, the church shouldn't be calling people to repentance. Those, this is, quote unquote, spiritual ministry here. It is baptizing, discipling, teaching. This is what Jesus says we are called to do. And notice, we teach like Jesus did because Matthew's entire gospel, actually, I could point this out. If, if you want an interesting thing, read Matthew's gospel. What you get, there's, I think it's five panels where we get words of Jesus, like Matthew 5 to 7, followed by actions of Jesus, Matthew 8 and 9, okay? And then you get another panel of words of Jesus and another panel of actions of Jesus. And it goes throughout the entire gospel where Jesus preaches and the good news, the gospel, and then Jesus does good works. And Jesus says, what I've been doing, you do the same thing. And that includes not only that you teach like I did, you actually teach what I taught. Whatever I have commanded you, you teach. You go forth and you command that to the nations and call them to repentance. And so Jesus commanded us were to evangelize. But there's a second reason that it's important for us to do this, and that is it is essential. Let me say something that's very unpopular in our world today. It's essential because there is no other way of salvation. There is no plan B. We live in a multicultural society that wants to say, well, obviously there are many ways. Except for there's not. The apostle Peter stands up and says in, in Acts 4.12, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. We actually sing this verse, put to music sometimes, right? This is the message. There is no other way. It is not just, this is what eroded the cause of mission in the church was when we lost confidence in this and we, some people actually started saying, well, Jesus may make it easier for us to get to heaven. That's not what Peter says. What Peter says is he didn't make it easier. There is no other way. So I suppose it is easier than impossible, which is what it was before Jesus came. It is impossible for us to come into the kingdom of God apart from Jesus. See, that's where you remember when Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle 
than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples are blown away. And we try to come up with answers. You know, well, there was a, a gate in Jerusalem wall and all this kind of stuff, which actually isn't true. It wasn't there. What Jesus meant was that big smelly animal over there, you'd have a better time getting it through the eye of a needle than you would getting into the kingdom. And that's why the disciples are shocked. How can it be? And what's Jesus' response? It's impossible for you, but what's impossible with men is possible with God. But the way it's possible is the message of Jesus Christ. The way it's possible is Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and we proclaim the gospel and say, repent and believe the good news. Therefore, we have to proclaim the gospel. This is a burden of mine. Christians get involved in all kinds of other things, and there are all kinds of groups out there that will do anything and everything else, but no one else will preach the gospel. Only the church can preach the gospel, and we dare not lose that in our call. We must proclaim the good news because people will perish apart from the gospel. There is no plan B. Just isn't. Now, that's why I said this is unpopular today because we are all about plan B. We are all about smorgasbord. We are all about multiple options. If you don't believe that, just walk into the grocery store down the street and see how many versions of cereal we got and just how many versions of Coke there are. We like to have every possible choice, but there is no other choice here. This is it. Jesus or eternal damnation. Heaven with Jesus and through Jesus or you're lost forever. And therefore, the church has to proclaim the gospel. Third reason that this is essential is we have to proclaim the gospel of Christ for there are lost people all around us who will perish apart from the good news. They, they are perishing without us, taking the gospel to them. There is no other way. I won't turn there, but you remember even when Cornelius has an angel show up to him and he's crying out and the angel says, God has, has looked and seen how you are giving alms and you are trying to find the kingdom of God. Does the angel tell Cornelius the good news? How's Cornelius going to get the good news? Send to Joppa, Look for a man named Peter who's staying at the house of Simon the Tanner. He's got his own issues I'm having to work on right now. And if you watch, Peter comes back and gives the least inspiring sermon in the history of uninspiring sermons because he's not interested in this Gentile coming into the kingdom. But through Peter's proclamation of Christ, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentiles, and Peter says, I guess I have no choice here. Is that not how it worked? That's exactly what it was. But the angel doesn't proclaim the gospel. God could have done it that way. I'm amazed he didn't. He had, he had the archangels sitting at his right hand, and he looked down and thought it was a better idea to use us. I, I might question that, except for I know he's all-knowing and wise, so I have to go with it. It was a good idea. We're who he chose. There is no other way for the gospel to get out, friends. And it's not only that people here locally need it. The church has to proclaim the gospel to the billions who have not yet heard so that they can hear and respond and receive life. They will not hear apart from us going to them. And the theme I've stated throughout this series, and I'm going to continue to state, will it cost to preach the gospel here and to go to the farthest corners of the earth? Yes, there is no such thing as the mission being accomplished without sacrifice and suffering on the part of the church. Many of those billions that do not have the gospel, if we go to them, are they going to receive it with open arms and say, well, this is wonderful? They're not. I could use examples like Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and the guys that went down to the the Stone Age tribe there, they were not received with open arms. They were shot to death. They were killed. But the very people who killed them later became believers. We are not going to get into the Muslim world by waiting for the UN to open the doors. Not going to happen. People are going to have to go, and when you go, there will be suffering. I know that doesn't fit our health and wealth thing that we want to talk about here, but God's not interested in that. He's interested in the gospel going forth. 
And so we have to take the gospel. And it is unpopular, but we are not called to popularity, but rather to faithfulness. That's what God is going to speak to us, and woe to us if we do not proclaim Christ. There is nothing in the Scripture, I challenge you, look, where Jesus says, they were gathered before me, and I looked to them and said, well done, good and popular and successful servant. Are those words anywhere? Well done, good and faithful servant. Was Jeremiah faithful? Yes. And what was the exact result of his ministry? Right, being thrown into a well and hated by his own people that he went to and cast off. Most of the prophets, read Hebrews 11. We misunderstand Hebrews 11. We think it's this great story about how we win uh, temporally. Most of the people in there, the guy says, I don't even have time to go into all the people who, who were sawn in half and they were, all these terrible things happened to them. And even when it says, you know, they shut lion's mouths, that's Daniel who's in Babylon, who's in exile. All of these terrible things are going on. But what the writer is telling us is, in the end, God wins, and he rewards faithful servants. And if we're to be faithful, we carry the gospel, and I will go ahead and tell you, you will not be applauded. If you want to know, well, how do I do it and have everybody like me for doing it? There is no way, okay? You didn't like it the first time people came to you and said, you deserve to be under the wrath of God. There's not enough sugar to make that medicine go down well. There's just not, okay? It's not our job to make it go down well. It's our job to faithfully proclaim it. And the same Holy Spirit who opened your eyes, who, who changed your stone-cold dead heart, who raised you and me from the dead, can do the same thing with them. And that's where our trust is. So first, we have to go with the gospel. Secondly, however, we are called to minister to the poor and suffering. Now, why do I say this? Number one, we're commanded to care for the poor and suffering. It's not just Luke 4, our text tells us that. But let me show you some other places. James chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Notice what God is looking for here again is faithfulness. It doesn't say what God is looking for is for us to figure out how to take over some political party or get all the laws passed we want or anything else. What does it tell us to do? Look for the poor and the suffering and spend yourself in behalf of them. And God says, I like that. That I like. That's pure. That's faultless. That is faithful. And James tells us we have to do this. God commands us to do this, and it is not an option. And again, very often what you do, notice how James, I love that there's two aspects here. Look after orphans and widows in their distress, and then keep yourself from being polluted by the world. Very often people who like to talk about mercy ministry don't like talking about keeping yourself polluted from the world. And those who like talking about keeping yourself polluted from the world don't like talking about mercy ministry. But see, the Holy Spirit says you can't separate them. You can't separate good news from good works. And so you're called to do both. Secondly, well, and let me say, as we look at this, and it's imperative for us to understand this, a faith that doesn't care for the suffering is a deformed faith, and it is unworthy of our kind and gracious and merciful God. Our God came to us in our poverty and our suffering and ministered to us. And if we think we have a well-formed faith that does not include that, we are deceiving ourselves. Our faith is actually deformed, highly deformed. Secondly, we're called not only because we're commanded, but the example of Jesus calls us to mercy ministry. Jesus told us in John chapter 20, verse 21, he's breathing on the Holy Spirit, uh, the, the Holy Spirit onto the disciples, and he's telling them that they're going to go out and preach the gospel. But he begins by saying this, peace be with you. Okay, shalom. He pronounces a benediction on him and says, and as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Now, this is a statement that we're not just sent. We are sent as Jesus was sent. 
The same way the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And that's not just, well, I'm sending you out. That is, consider how I was sent. Consider how I came to you, and then you are going to be sent in the same way that I was sent forth. He tells them they're going to preach the gospel, but understand, Jesus didn't just preach the gospel. He also relieved suffering. If you look in John's gospel, this year we saw the seven I am sayings where Jesus is proclaiming the gospel that he is the great I am. But the other thing that structures John's gospel is seven sign miracles where Jesus is ministering and everything from a poor folks at a wedding that don't have the wine they need for the wedding and he relieves and cares for to raising people from the dead and everything in between. And they are all signs. Jesus preaches the gospel. He also ministers physically. And he says, you do what I did. I don't just preach. I go and relieve suffering and you do the same. And consider this. In our suffering, God did not send an email He didn't drop something out. He didn't get up at 2 a.m. and tweet a message. How did God come to us in our sin and our distress? It's incarnation, okay? Incarnation. Now, I remind us, if you are Jesus and you are sitting at the right hand of the throne of God and the call is to rescue these people, and the method is for you to become one of them. And what it means is you will be born, not in a king's palace, which still wouldn't match where you already were. No, you're going to be born in a smelly stable, animals all around, Nobody knows. And you are going to grow up in obscurity. You are going to grow up ultimately with a single mom, it appears, because dad has died. You are growing up probably in poverty in a backwater province. And the end result is going to be the more you minister to people, the more they rail against you, the more they use you, the more they hate you. And in the end, they will crucify you and put you to death. Who says, ooh, ooh, Can I give up all the power of heaven and sitting at the right hand of God for that? That's how you were saved. That's how I was saved. Incarnation. He came to us. He didn't minister from afar. He got his hands dirty. Our God is a God who gets involved in life. He is not far from those who suffer. And the church cannot proclaim that we are following his method and we are being sent as he was sent if we want to do it some way other than incarnating and being right there in the midst of the suffering. We are called to do the same. The third reason that we are to be engaged in mercy ministry is mercy ministry opens doors for the gospel. This is why these are not two separate things. They feed into one another. Jesus himself told us in Matthew's record of Jesus' opening sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, or his most important sermon, he says this, in the same way, let your light shine before men, and here's why, that they may praise your good deeds, or see your good deeds, and praise your Father in heaven. So notice here, Jesus says if you're doing good deeds, you're doing good works, what is the overflow of that? People praising our Father in heaven. Now let me go ahead and point out here, Jesus is good in his theology. Do unregenerate people praise God? They don't. Their heart is hard towards God. So what has happened? They have seen the good deeds, and it has opened their heart to the good works, and they praise God. That is what happens in this cycle. And so good deeds open the door for the gospel. Jesus met physical needs and used that to open the door to the gospel of the kingdom. And he's saying, the same way I did it, you do as well. How often do we read in the Gospels where Jesus comes in, he meets somebody in their point of need, and then they say, who are you? And he proclaims to them the Gospel of the kingdom, and they become believers. Probably the most famous hymn in English, uh, Amazing Grace, you know, I once was blind, but now I see. Where does that line come from? Remember, Jesus heals the blind guy, and the Pharisees aren't into that because he did it the wrong way and at the wrong time. And the guy says, look, I I don't know all the theology and everything else, but here's what I know. I was blind, now I see. So, So now I'm following that guy. That's what I'm doing. And so that idea of the good news Uh, being opened as we do good works, Jesus himself commends that to us by his example and in the words there in Matthew 5. But we can see them even down through church history. I'll just take one quote. 
in the fourth century, after Constantine, there were a couple of Roman emperors who proclaimed themselves to be believers. But then arose a man named Julian the Apostate. And Julian, as his new surname might uh, suggest, since he's Julian the Apostate, he's not into Christianity. He doesn't like it. He's trying to revive paganism in the Roman Empire. But here's why he's having a hard time. Here's Julian's quote. Nothing has so contributed to the progress of these Christians as their charity to strangers. The impious Galileans, that's what he called us, provide not only for their own, but for ours as well. Here's what Julian said. He said, you want to know why paganism can't get traction again? The Christians are not only caring for the Christian poor, they're caring for the pagan poor. We're not even caring for our own, but the Christians are caring for ours, and that's why we can't get rid of this faith that I don't like. And he was correct. He couldn't. Julian the apostate fell off the scene, and Christianity continued to grow. Very often in the history of the church, it is mercy ministry that has opened the door for the gospel. It is the doing of good works that has opened the door for good news. Now, if you think just last Sunday, if you were here, right here on this stage, we were hearing an example of exactly this thing. That's exactly what the McClure ministry is about over in Cambodia. Karen is there doing medical missions work in a country where, as a result of those who had closed the door to the gospel because Pol Pot, the Khmer Rouge, uh, you know, their, their, their tendencies there, they destroyed the country. The response is not just to come in and preach the gospel because if you try and go into those villages, they're not hearing something else. They just want to not have their daughter or their wife die in childbirth. They want their young children to not die. But if you will come in and do what Karen is doing and train people to do that, they suddenly become receptive to the gospel. And so Steve is then there training pastors and church planners. Mercy ministry is usually the way to open the door for gospel ministry. So we saw this last week. It's exactly what the McClure's doing. But it's not just the McClure's. Bombay Teen Challenge does the same thing. When you have a girl whose life's been shattered by being part of the sex slave trade. How do you minister to her? You can't just say, well, stay in the sex slave trade, but here's a tract. Is that the gospel? Is that what Christ would call us to do? We bring that young girl out, and you've got to help restore a shattered life. And as you do so, their hearts open to the gospel because they find it hard to believe that anybody cares about them. We say the same thing. Actually, if we look over in Kenya that we've got with the McElhaney's, they're doing the same thing. Medical mission work opening the door for gospel ministry. Lee and Carol Short doing the same thing when they go into the, the villages in Cardboard Landia there. Some of us in the church have been there where people are literally living in cardboard houses they've made in a garbage dump. You can't simply say be warmed and filled. You've got to feed. You've got to clothe. You've got to care You've got to give hope. But as you do so, it opens the door for the gospel. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, and this is imperative for us to see, globally, the people with least access to the gospel are among the most poor and suffering as well. So it's not even two competing needs. They go hand in hand. In fact, there's a, a problem that we've noticed as they've studied missions work is very often as the gospel comes in, we, if Christians come in and relieve physical poverty, and the gospel is proclaimed, and people respond as they are walking with God and the Holy Spirit is transforming them, it starts to change them, and they start rising out of poverty. And sometimes it creates trouble because suddenly they become more interested in money than they have been in the kingdom. And it's actually called the, the lift effect of the gospel, but it's kind of a double-edged sword. But they've noticed it over and over and over again. Everywhere the gospel has flourished, it has led to flourishing in other areas of life. And so it's the same people that we are trying to reach, and we need to do both. Now, how do we apply this? What does this mean for you and me? First thing, do we see, let me give a little theology. Do we see the need for holistic ministry? I've used this word many times if you've been in the church. We're not Gnostic. Gnostics would not have this because they don't care about the body. 
It makes no difference. It's, you know, they followed Plato, and this is just the prison house of the soul. Christianity says that's crazy. It's not the prison house of the soul. It's integral to who we are, and God cares for our body because he made it. So we, because God made both body and soul, care for both body and soul. Jesus ministered to both body and soul and calls us to do the same. And this is why, because we're not Gnostic, it makes perfect sense. If people were the way that we oftentimes think, you know, or the way the Gnostics teach us to think, and the body was a prison house for the soul, then it wouldn't matter whether we cared for the body or not. We would be ministering to their soul, and it wouldn't have any effect whether we ministered to the body or not. But as we've seen, it does have an effect. It makes a big difference, and that's because Gnosticism's not true. You can't separate the body and the soul. You can't separate spiritual from physical. But friends, we are tempted. We have wrestled with Gnosticism, and it is alive and well in the evangelical church. And so we have to think through this, and that's why we do the two together. And so we have to devote ourselves to both, and we have to do it both locally and abroad. So do we see that? Do we understand that? I bring this up because you've been affected by Gnosticism. Even if you'd never heard of the word before you hear me keep using it, it's affected the way you think. Okay, when we even think about, you know, I'm going to fly away to glory like we were singing this morning, I challenge you, ask people what they think about heaven. I just heard a bunch of interviews of people on the street, and everybody thinks we're going to go up there in some disembodied state and float around in the clouds. That's Gnostic. Our salvation is not getting away from the body. But if we think that way, it undermines the way we minister. So do we understand that? Second thing. Am I personally involved in mercy ministry? And I'm going to get a little personal. It's good and right for me to open up my checkbook and write a check for the McClure's to do what they're doing in Cambodia. That is good and right. But that is not enough. I have to be personally involved. And that can become very uncomfortable. We Americans, especially we middle, upper middle class Americans would rather pay somebody else to do it because it's difficult to be there in the midst of all these things and to see all of these things. But see, all of us are called to act like good Samaritans on the road, not to be the priest passing by and the Levite passing by and saying, I'll write a check and send somebody back. No, I'm going to do that which is inconvenient now, which is difficult, and I'm going to stop, and I'm going to get hands-on involved and engaged. Now, here's why we don't like to do it. It costs. It does. It's inconvenient. It always is. And there's the question, but if I do that, I might get used. Let me resolve that for you. Yes, you will. Absolutely, positively, you will. And God says, wrong question, not the issue. Does the kindness and grace of God get misused? Every day. Uh, Boy, it's been raining this week. We're going to get sunshine this week coming up. I saw that. I hope it's true. When that sun comes out, is it only going to shine on those who are grateful to God for it? Everybody. Everybody gets it. Most people do not give thanks to God for all the things he does. They use his good gifts. If they do that with him, are we going to get used by people when we try to help them? Yes, we are. And just like with the gospel, it's not my concern to have a certain percentage of people that respond when I share the gospel. I'm just supposed to share the gospel. God's the one has got to bring the increase. Well, when I try to help people physically, it's the same thing. It's not my job to, to figure out everything about it. And did I get the right percentage? My job is to extend myself in behalf of those who are suffering. And God says, once again, well done, good, and faithful. That's what I'm called to do. That doesn't mean that we're mindless about it. We are called to be stewards. But we, we need to recognize all of those things can become an excuse to not get involved personally. We have to do it. So, How am I personally serving in mercy ministry? Personally. In other words, how often am I getting my hands dirty? How often am I incarnating? 
Now, you may say, well, I'm not even sure how to do that. Well, here's good news for you. We got several opportunities where you can do it regularly right here at Bay Ridge. We got a small group goes down to the lighthouse shelter. Every single month, they pray for the folks, and they go down there. Because what is needed is not writing a check. It's to sit down with someone who's in a tough spot. Sit across from them. And see, and here's one of the sad things. When our small group was in the rotation, we used to regularly go down there. I heard this comment over and over and over again. The people were amazed when we would sit down. They would kind of look at me and say, you're going to eat with me? And I said, yeah, if that's okay. They said, it is. They said, but a lot of people come down here and they give us food, but they won't sit and eat with us. And I always wonder, is there something wrong with the food? Or is there something wrong with me? Great opportunity. So if you want to do it, you can see Karen, and you can be involved to go down to the shelter and sit and give a meal, give some dignity, give some hope to somebody who is struggling. There's a group that serves at the detention center. You can see James about it. They can always use more folks go in. You got a few more hoops to go through. There's a little bit of inconvenience, but again, to be there and to minister. When I spent three years working in a detention center, it was amazing when I could see the gospel get a hold of somebody. And I always knew because suddenly more and more people started showing up, and I found out somebody had laid hold of the gospel, and they were out beating the, they were beating the bushes and getting people to come in and hear as I was just sharing the gospel over and over and over again with the guys. Okay? Our... Are some of the guys in jail actually guilty? Yes, there are at least a few who are actually guilty. Does that mean I should not share the gospel and minister to them? How many of us in here are guilty before God? If you are, raise your hand. Okay? Did the gospel not come to us because we were guilty? When I was living in the depth of my sin and ingratitude towards God, did he make it that I couldn't eat food and digest it and breathe? He, he was kind to me. We're called to be the same way. Great opportunities. Short-term missions trips are another opportunity. And let me tell you, you go to some places. When we were in Mexico, and we went into the dump there in Cardboardlandia. Let me tell you, it's not the most pleasant place in the world. You spend a lot of time trying to practice holding back gag reflexes from the smell. You see tragic, horrible things you don't forget. But we got to extend ourselves in behalf of those who are suffering. We got winter relief coming up. All of these are ways where you can jump in and you can get involved, and we need to put our hands to it. Not write a check but be personally involved. And I want to encourage you the other way, just to open your eyes. It's all around us. It was through getting involved with Lighthouse Shelter and Winter Relief, I started discovering and seeing more and more homeless people around Annapolis. I didn't even realize we had such a thing. And then you start figuring out there are communities of folks, and you start discovering where they live when they're homeless and what's going on. If we open our eyes, we can see people all around us who need this. Now, that leads, and we're going to come down to the table with this, to the ultimate need, which is the gospel. Because we don't stop there. It's not enough just to go to Lighthouse Shelter and give them a meal. We're also looking for opportunities to reach out and share the gospel. And I had some people who didn't want to hear that. That's okay. But we had many people who did, and we could reach out and share with them. Because only the gospel of Christ can save. A filled stomach does not fill your soul. It does not save you or restore you in a relationship with God. And so, we have to be engaged in preaching the gospel. And once again, we can't write a check for somebody else to do it. Okay? The idea here is not, well, I'll write a check. Brett will stand up and preach every week, and there we go. I'm involved in evangelism. Not really. Okay? You and I are called in our daily life. We're called to recognize. We need to recognize when God brings open opportunities. Years ago, Linda and I built friendship with a family, and all of a sudden we discovered that I was coaching one of their sons on one little league team, and, and on the other little league team, their other son was there, and they'd moved the block away from us. And we're not the brightest bulbs in the pack, but we said, seems like Jesus is trying to do something with his family. And some of you folks, if you've been here for a long time, remember it was Keith and Kathy Matheson. And when suddenly Kathy got cancer, her heart was opened up to the gospel, and we involved there, and she became a believer by just simply building friendship and being there. And my wife, God bless her, used to get up at like 5 in the morning, and if you know Linda, you know what a sacrifice that was, 
5 in the morning to go out and walk with Kathy Matheson. And she said, I hope this crazy woman gets something out of this because I'm just trying to build a friendship. That wasn't anything big. It's just, hey, here's an opportunity. Right now, we've been praying for a couple of years because my next-door neighbor moved in a couple of years ago. I went and shook his hand, and he told me, hi, my name's Muhammad. Again, not the brightest bulb in the pack, but I thought, I bet you're Muslim. And sure enough, he's from India, and he is, and I pray for their family regularly, and every chance I get, I'm out there trying to minister to them. It's, it's slow going, but it's okay. I'm looking for opportunities to do it. Are we personally involved and engaging? It's not work for preachers and missionaries. All believers are called to share the simple good news. So am I praying for opportunities to do that? Am I saying, God, give me an opportunity. Open the door. I want to share the gospel. And then secondly, when I pray that, and he does, do I actually step in and share the gospel? Not worrying once again, is it possible people might say, get out of my face, I don't want to hear that stuff. That is very possible. And we just say, okay, Lord, I'm trying to be faithful. I'm trying to do. If you look in the Scripture, we see that time and time again. If Jesus was treated that way, we have no reason to expect anything else. Are we looking for those opportunities? With that, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And I want you to notice that true to what I've been saying, the table that we share here is not just a spiritual table. Jesus doesn't say, imagine in your mind, if you will, a loaf of bread. He doesn't do that. He takes bread, and it was broken for us. And that which is physical, bread and fruit of the vine, also represents that which is spiritual, the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And so we are fed not only bodily, but we are fed spiritually because we're not Gnostics. This would, this would not be what a Gnostic religion would create as the apex of our worship. They would leave this out. It's too physical. But see, we come to a table that feeds body and soul because our God was incarnated. It was real flesh. It was real blood that was broken for us and for our salvation. And in that same body, he now sits at the right hand of the Father and he intercedes for you and me that we can come in and worship before him. So we're going to come to this table and I want to encourage you to consider. And if you say, how have I been doing with good news, good works, the gospel, with mercy ministry? If we're failing, let's be honest and tell our God, okay? And let's also ask him to open doors for us to be engaged, giving thanks that Jesus, again, didn't send a check. He came to us and asking him to do the same for us. For what I receive from the Lord, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread when he'd given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, as we come to this table this morning, we are grateful that you have invited us here. Jesus, we who had no right to the table because we were the ones who broke your body and spilled your blood, yet you have invited us in. And so we humbly come before you now through this table that you have given us access by that very broken body and shed blood. And we rejoice before you in the forgiveness of sins. And we rejoice before you in the empowerment that we receive as you feed us here. Come Holy Spirit and meet us in the sacrament. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As you get the elements, hold on to them, and then we will take them together in just a couple of moments.
Father God, as we hold this bread in our hands, we are reminded how bountiful is this earth that you have given to us. Father, that we could put a seed of wheat into the ground and that it would sprout and bring forth so bountifully and that, Father, from that we can receive nourishment for our bodies. And Father, as Jesus told us in a parable, it grows night and day. We don't even fully understand how. But Lord, it's a sign of your goodness to us that when you created us, you gave us a bountiful earth. Father, you've provided for us, we confess today, richly throughout our lives. So often we have not been grateful. So often we have thought that we had done it on our own. And so often, Lord, when you have been kind and overflowing in your bounty towards us, and then we can turn and be stingy towards those who are made in your image. Father, we confess those sins of ingratitude, those sins of not going as you have called us to go and serving as you have called us to serve. Father, we are grateful that the reason we can come to this table is because of your kindness, your mercy, and because even when we took the sinless Son of God and killed him, you work so that even that sin, Lord, under your sovereignty brought about salvation. Because the breaking of his body opened the door for us to be healed and made whole. Father, we marvel at the mystery of your grace towards us. And as those who have so often been ungrateful, Today we hold this bread and we say thanks be to God for the food that you give and especially for our Lord Jesus Christ. Take and eat. And Father, as we hold this cup, cup of the new covenant that was sealed by the shedding of Jesus' blood, we recognize that our needs are far deeper than just physical. Lord, as deep as the need we have is to take and eat, Father, all of that would be of no good if we would die in our trespasses and sins. So, Lord, we are grateful above all things for the blood of Christ that has cleansed us from our sin, that has justified us, made us pure and holy in your sight, that has cleansed our consciences from acts that lead to death, that we might serve the living God. Father, we are so grateful for the blood of Jesus. We are so grateful that our salvation rests not upon our good deeds, but his. Not upon what we can say or do, but upon the gospel that was sealed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we lift up this cup and we say thanks be to God for the blood of Jesus Christ, the only thing that can save what can wash away our sin, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Thank you for his blood. Take and drink. Father, I pray that as you have fed and nourished and ministered to us today in body, soul, and spirit, mind, and will, and emotion, Father, I pray that we would go forth as those who are sent to do the same thing. Lord, I pray for us this week that you would give us open doors, Lord, for good news and good works. Father, open doors that we might be able to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with someone who does not know, and that we might be able to be your hands and feet and reach out and minister to someone who is struggling and suffering, and that in so doing, Lord, you would open their hearts to the gospel. Father, we thank you that of all the miraculous things, Lord, you not only saved us, but you have commissioned us. That we are not only your children, but we are your ambassadors. Father, thank you for giving us that privilege. 
We pray you would use us to serve you as we serve others this week in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together, and we'll conclude with a word of benediction. And I encourage you, as you are blessed, to go be a blessing. May you receive grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son. May it be with you in truth and love. Go forth in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.